Luke chapter 10, begin reading at verse 30. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three... Thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. This parable or story is a simple answer to a statement by a man who knew the Old Testament word of God. He's called here a lawyer. But it's referring to the Old Testament law. And his question is, yes, I've kept the commandments. I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've loved my neighbor as myself. And then he said, but who exactly is my neighbor? And this is the response that Jesus gives. So I want to preach for just a little while about neighbors. Neighbors, why don't you turn to the person beside you and ask them, hey, won't you be my neighbor? <laughs> Go ahead, ask one more person. We need lots of neighbors. Interesting enough. Mr. Rogers went to seminary with my father-in-law. Is that interesting? God bless you. You may be seated. In Luke 10, there are three major stories and divisions. The first division is simply telling us that we have to have a love for those that we minister to. That if we are going to heal the sick through the power of God, we've got to be moved on with compassion. That if we are going to preach the kingdom of God is at hand, then we've got to sow with tears so that we can reap with joy. 
It gives us strong instruction we are to love those we minister to. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul begins to line out for us gifts of the Spirit. But he takes almost the entire chapter of chapter 13 saying it doesn't matter how powerful you can operate in gifts of power. If you're not operating or originating from love or charity or compassion, you're a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. Luke 10 begins to deal one division that we must have compassion and love for those we minister to. Second division that we find, and it almost is like uh, for real when you read it because it declares that we must have a love for the God that we're serving. (laughs) That would seem like, of course, we have to love God. But it can be easy for individuals to fall in love with a local church and not be in love with the God of that church or an organization and forget that it's all about a vehicle that brings us to a love relationship with our God. You can even get so involved in the kingdom that it becomes more a job than a ministry or something we do as a hobby or a habit and forget that everything that we do, it's because he first loved us and we're trying to love him back. He is an awesome father and we love him. The third division is wherein we have taken our text and it is different from the first two in that it declares we've got to love our neighbor or love our fellow man. And this is how that is defined by Jesus speaking this story. Now here's what we'll deal with the oxymoron that I promised you. These two words together, good and Samaritan, is an oxymoron. In fact, you won't find that anywhere in the scripture about a good Samaritan. You know what an oxymoron is, right? It's putting two opposite words together to try to describe something like, you know, they have a real love-hate relationship. I think we know what that means, but that really doesn't make sense to say they have a love relationship and a hate relationship. Suddenly the room was filled with deafening silence. His singing was enough to raise the living dead. I don't know what that is. Do you have the original copies Is it original or is it a copy? Jumbo shrimp. Your only choice. You're alone together. It's the same difference. Sweet sorrow, old news, good grief, painfully beautiful. All these things are opposite words that we put together. And good and Samaritan are absolutely oxymorons because they should not be used in the same breath. If you look in the Old Testament, the first time that you see Samaria mentioned, it is associated with kings of the divided kingdom of Israel and its place where Israel evil kings reign. The first time you see it in the word of God, it simply says that there was an evil king that arose named Jeroboam, and Jeroboam did evil and reigned in Samaria. That's the, the foundation of the first time you see Samaria. It's where an evil king reigns. And then the next places that we see Samaria is the same thing. It says that there arose a king Ahab who did more evil than all his fathers and reigned in Samaria. 
that there was a hazy eye. He also did evil and reigned in Samaria. Omri, evil, reigned in Samaria. Jehoram, evil, reigned in Samaria. Jehu did some good, but then he followed the ways of his fathers and did evil. He reigned in Samaria. Jehoahaz, you should try to read these names. It's evil. All of these kings did evil, and they reigned in Samaria, Zechariah, Menahem, Pekahiah, Pekah, Hosea, all of these. And there begins to be a reputation in the Old Testament that is very powerfully also in the New Testament that people that from are from Samaria is where evil comes from. That's where religious bigotry happens. That's, a, that's where devils are obsessing people. And, and you don't want to be, if you're a good person, you don't want to be associated with Samaria. That's where evil kings reign. In fact, it becomes a place of rebellion. In, math, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, don't look there or go there. But Jesus sent out 70 disciples and he told them, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, preach the kingdom of God is at hand. But there's two places I don't want you to go. Jesus told them, don't go to two places and let the kingdom of God flourish. Don't go to the Gentiles. And whatever you do, don't go to the Samaritans. Because they're an unrepented, uncovenant people, and they don't have no rights and no worthiness and no deserving any of the goodness of the kingdom of God. Can I tell you that the kingdom of God is still for those who are repentant and in covenant relationship with the Lord. And everything that that includes, healings, miracles, signs and wonders and blessings, all of these things are for the covenant people of God. The religious rulers accused Jesus in his days of being two things. And in their mind, it was one and the same. John 8 and 48, they said, Jesus, you are from Samaria and you have a devil. <laughs> because in their minds, if you had a devil, you must be from Samaria. And if you're from Samaria, you must have a devil. These are the religious people of the day and the way they thought in the time of Christ. There was a time when Jesus stooped and showed great mercy and he went into the city of the Samaritans and they turned up their nose at his mercy and grace. It was tremendous mercy, tremendous grace. In fact, when Jesus walked out of these cities and they did not want his forgiveness, James and John said, how dare thee? Why don't we call fire down from heaven and consume this whole city, these evil people, and when you showed mercy, they wanted nothing to do with it. Samaritans, this is not the Old Testament alone, it's the new. I want you to see even that the disciples, the disciples even had prejudices that they might not have even known that they had. Because when Matthew writes the gospel that God moved on him to write, the great commission, he penned it like this, that Jesus, right before he ascended up into heaven, told all of us disciples to go to all nations and teach, preach. But Mark writes, and he simply says that Jesus said in the great commission to go to all the world. Luke, Luke writes and said that Jesus said to go to all nations and begin at Jerusalem, being more specific. 
But it's not until after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Ghost falls and there's a, there's a speaking in tongues that happens in the church's birth. It's not until after Philip goes down to Samaria in Acts chapter 8 and then Peter and John come and the Holy Ghost falls that now Luke who pins the actions of the apostles of the book of Acts picks it up in chapter 1 and when rehearses the great commission again he says that this is what Jesus said. You shall repeat power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem and all Judea. Oh yeah. And in Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. So this is the division that we are looking at. You have to have a love for your neighbor. And so Jesus gives the story. When Jesus begins to declare that a certain man went down from Jerusalem, this word certain describing man actually brings it back to the reader that it very well could be someone like you. Beautiful word in the Greek that a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is absolutely true geographically because Jerusalem sets in the hills and then Jericho sets in the plains, Judea and Jezreel. And there is a downward trek you have to go. Just short of a thousand feet is where Jerusalem sets above sea level, but it is actually six to 700 feet below sea level to where Jericho is. So it's downward geographically, but it's also a downward picture in the spiritual because Jerusalem is spoken of as the beloved city or the city of peace, the city that Jesus loves. Jericho is a cursed city. It represents man's way against God's way. And in the Old Testament, when Joshua and the people of Israel marched around Jericho, Joshua began to put a, a curse on the city. Once that God gave them the city supernaturally, he said, let no man rebuild Jericho. If he does, a curse be upon him in his firstborn and in his lastborn. And when Hiel the Bethelite rebuilt Jerusalem, he lost his firstborn son. He died when he laid the foundations thereof. And when he put the gate up to signify the, the completion of that city, his youngest son died also. It represents a cursed place, man's ideas and wills versus Jerusalem, a place where the heart of God is. So it is a downward spiritual spiral and journey. But then as the man chose this journey, I'm sure not wanting to get into trouble, but simply making decision, this is the way I'll live, this is the way I go, the scripture said that he fell. Wasn't on purpose. His foot may be on loose gravel or caught the edge of a little bit of different heights a rut in the ground, his ankle twisted. Whatever reason, it wasn't intentional, but he fell. He didn't intend to go on this road that's going to make him fall. He just made a choice to live his life this way. And in his life that he chose, he fell. And horrible, when he fell, the scripture says he fell among thieves, those that live only to steal, to kill, to destroy, to maim, to take advantage of. It's not his intention. This is not what he wanted to happen. He simply made a choice. This is the way I'll live. 
And that journey caused him to fall, unintentional, into the hands of thieves. Because they're thieves, they stripped him. They took not only his money, they took from him his clothing, his dignity, his honor. They exposed him, shamed him, and left him with absolutely nothing. Insult to injury, they now wound him. He's hurt, he's bleeding, he's bruised. And the scripture said that he was half dead as his life's blood is seeping from him. Again, you've got to understand, none of this was his intention. He probably intended to have a good life, to be blessed. He wanted to go his way and make his choices, but the choice that he made put him on a road where he slipped and fell and was hurt and wounded and broke and shamed and now laying half dead in the road. As Jesus tells this story, there seems to be great hope for he says a certain, certain man of God or priest happened to be on that journey. And he noticed him probably from a little bit of a distance because when he saw the man that was naked, bleeding, broke, wounded, he decided that he would walk as far as he could on the other side of the road. I have to imagine that he kind of averted his eyes not to even see because after all, he's a very important religious person. And he's got a meeting he has to go preach or something of the family situations he has to take care of. And this individual don't have the time, don't have the energy, don't have the effort. And he passes by. A person of God, a man of God passes by on the other side. And it looks like all hope is gone as Jesus tells this story about the certain man who was wounded. But then Jesus gives hope as he said, oh, there's a Levite that is happening down that way as well. The word Levite means to join together. The very purpose of the Levites is to join God with mankind. It's to connect the hurting and the broken to a healer and to a restorer and to a deliverer. And a Levite is coming that way. And it seems to say in the scripture that he at least observed what was going on. Maybe like a car wreck on the highway, he rubbernecked. <laughs> And he took a good view. Oh, my goodness. That is terrible. What a, what a shame that hurts the heart. But for whatever reason, he made evaluations. Either I, I don't have what this man needs or, or this man is dying anyways. It'd be a waste of my time or, or I'm too busy. But for whatever reason, he looked upon the individual and then he, like the former man of God, went to the other side of the road and went on his way. Surely all hope is gone. But then Jesus begins to tell the story of a man from Samaria, a certain Samaritan came by that way. But there's no hope here because Samaria is evil. Probably the Samaritan is just going to 
try to get something from me I don't even have. They're going to want to offer from me. They're going to expect some kind of response from me. They're going to expect me to do this. And to, they're, they're the Samaritan. That's just evil stuff. But the Samaritan came to where this man was, this certain Samaritan, and he looked upon him. And as he looked, he now came to where he was. Oftentimes, individuals who are wounded and broken can't come to where we are. We have to go to where they are. And the certain man went to this man bleeding, broken, bruised, and he beheld him. He saw him. He also went through the process, no doubt, of evaluation. He realized quickly, this ain't my family. This is not my congregation. This is not my church members. But something of compassion began to move in him because he drew close to that individual. And now the scripture says that he went right up to him and bound his wounds with oil and wine. That, that lets us know this is not the common healing uh, liquids of the day, but it is all that he had with him. And he's not a medical doctor who has all the information, but all he can do is use what he has. He doesn't have the best resources. He doesn't have all the knowledge, but he's willing to draw close to an individual to try to help. Maybe he doesn't know the Bible back and forth, and he doesn't move with great grace and gifts of healing, but he draws close, and whatever he can do, he does. And as he puts oil and wine upon this individual, he does something powerful by getting off the blessing, his donkey, he got off the blessing of his beast of burden and put this stranger on the beast while he walks. Well, that's my blessing, but a stranger needs help, so I'll get off of my blessing and let him ride. The Bible says that he brought him to an inn, hotel, bed and breakfast type situation. It must have been late at night there. In my imagination, the certain Samaritan must be some kind of businessman. No doubt he's got an appointment on the next day. He's got to be sharp to give a presentation to sell what he's going to sell. He's got to be in it, but he's deciding that he's going to stay up half the night with a delirious, high-fevered stranger who's half dead, comforting him with words of encouragement. You're safe. You're going to be okay. When he cries out delirious, thinking that he's still in trouble. No, 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 no. It's all right. You're going to be okay. And a cool cloth, perhaps wet upon his forehead. Anything that he possibly can do. He sacrificed his sleep, his energy, even his few days in the future because of the lack of sleep and the tiredness he would be in. And then in the morning, he's got to get on his journey. But he goes to the caretaker of the inn or the Airbnb and he says... Two pence is all I have. That should take care of my room, but there's a stranger in my room that's half dead. I don't have the money for you to take care of him properly, but if you will let me put this on my credit card, if you would let me charge, and it doesn't matter what it takes 
Just take care of him. When I come back through, I will pay off whatever I have charged to his account. And after Jesus makes this statement that we call the Good Samaritan, he asked that lawyer who knew the word of God back and forth, who do you think the neighbor is? But the prejudice in that man could not say Good Samaritan. No, couldn't even think that way. He couldn't even, with reference to the story, say that his neighbor would be the Samaritan in that story. All he could say was, he that showed mercy, he must be the neighbor. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And the story simply tells all of us that if you're going to love not only your God and those that you minister to, perhaps in a church sitting, but if you really want to do the will of God, you need to love those that need mercy. And the love demonstration is not just a feeling, but it's drawing close and having compassion and using what you have and bringing them to a safe place and even charging to your account whatever it would cost to make sure that they're healed and they're whole and they have the strength they need for life. I know it's easy to come into a tremendous, beautiful sanctuary like this and to experience not just the powerful singing and worship that is praise and worship to God, but, but experience the worship service that draws ourselves close to God. It's, it's, it's a great thing to be in a place among a program or among a church, if you will, that does things just A1 and top notch. And it should be that way because it's a reflection of how we feel about our God. It should be with excellence. It should be. But it's easy to look around and think, oh, look at all these priests and Levites and people with wings on their back. And look how holy they are. And I really don't fit here. I couldn't measure up. I'm faking it and the rest of them are actually have something from God. All of these things, it's easy. But what you've got to see today is that that's not the true picture. This preacher that's preaching to you today, I'm confessing before you, I'm a Samaritan. I, I was not born with some ethereal glow around my head. I wasn't raised in an environment that would be the perfect spoon-fed Christian environment. I made choices and mistakes that I'm ashamed to tell you and only will refer to them because I give glory to God. I know what it's like to spend time behind prison bars because society has deemed me unworthy to have freedom in my culture. Most of you probably didn't know that. I know what it's like to make a decision thinking that I'm going to circumvent the choices and mistakes and the sins in my life and talk my girlfriend into having an abortion. 
I know that shocks some of you, but you need to know I'm a Samaritan. I'm not some first-generation Christian that was living the life of a heathen and somehow God found me. I'm second or third-generation apostolic, raised in this, heard the truth from the time I was just a child. Sunday school lesson after Sunday school lesson taught me about the goodness of God and the blood that brings redemption to our life and the love of God at Calvary and the spotless lamb that washed away my sin. I've heard this all my life. I got the Holy Ghost at five years of age. They baptized me when I was eight thinking it'd be a little better. I had a little more understanding of the commitment that I was making. I'm not talking to you about somebody that's made good choices all his life. I'm a, Samar- I'm a Samaritan, and I've made poor choices. I decided one day when I was 18 that I'd just get up and go down a road that I thought would bring me joy, that I thought would bring me pleasure. But on that road, I never intended to fall and to enter into the hands of these that would strip me and hurt me and break me. I know what it's like for people in the church to walk by and say there's no hope. He'll never make anything. I know what it's like for church leaders to walk by and say he'll always be a backslider in and out all his life. He'll never amount to anything in God. But I also know what it's like for somebody who used to lay on the road like I did to come by and have compassion and say, I believe in you. And I'm so thankful today, not just for church and religion, but I'm thankful for individuals who love their God, love those they minister to, and they love their fellow man, even when they're broken and bleeding and laying beside the road with very little hope, half dead. Because that's my story. And I'll tell you what it's done for me. I can't go through a Sunday service like this and just do a pretty sermon have a pretty altar call. People pat you on the back. Oh, that was good. And go eat and go on with life. When I see people hurting, needing safety, needing the relationship with God because their life feels so empty, so broken. And in some cases, half dead many are in this house today in that situation but it's not just this preacher behind this pulpit all over this building are Samaritans that God found them sent some certain individual their way, prayed for them, lifted them up, brought them to an altar, broke them through their mess into a place of strength that God reached down from the miry pit from which they were and put their feet, bunch of Samaritans in the place. Let, let, let me show you 
How many of you are backsliders, but God brought you back to truth? Look at these hands up all over the place. Okay, hands down. How many of you had addictions in your life? Drugs, alcohol, nicotine, whatever it was. Your, your hand is... How many of you knew that relationships were being destroyed? Maybe your marriage or, or perhaps relationships within your family were being destroyed and that's where God found you and turned your life around. Is there a witness in the house? We're just a bunch of Samaritans. And we can't stand the idea that we would just go through religious programs today. But the heart of this church is to do everything we possibly can to help, to save, to heal this entire community and especially those that we've come in contact right here in the house today. You just have to let us be a neighbor. I want you to stand with me all over the house. And I, I know how friendly this church is. And even earlier, Pastor had a hard time getting everybody back after. But this is what I'm wanting you to do. If God has picked you up from the side of the road where you are bleeding, broken, wounded because of the choice you made to go down a certain road somebody reached out to you, then I want you to turn to someone beside you and tell them your testimony. I want your personal, I want you to turn to somebody and say, this is where I was. You've heard some of mine. Now, why don't they see that you're a Samaritan to turn to someone right beside you and tell them your testimony? You got two or three minutes. Good, good. This is where I was when God found me. <laughs> Whew, that is powerful. You got one more minute. That's it. Tell the testimony. Come on, some of you are long-winded, long-winded testifiers out there. Wrap it up, wrap it up. You got 10 seconds, wrap it up. Okay. Now told that testimony and let me, let me have your attention again, okay? Now you've practiced your testimony. Turn to somebody else that you feel compassion for and tell them your testimony. You already know what it is. Just tell somebody else that you have compassion for right now. Tell somebody that needs to hear your testimony. There you go. You got three more minutes. You can begin to play softly whenever you That's awesome. That's beautiful. That's <laughs> That's what this service is all about. Okay, wrap that testimony up. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, let's just do this. 
This church wants to love you. This church wants to help you. This church wants to put healing prayers and faith in your life. If you would just let us, then just give us a nod. And we're going to take you by the hand and bring you down to this altar. And we're going to pray using our prayer life. We're going to, we're going to use our faith that we have built up through years and years of walking with God. We're going to do our best to do everything we can for your situation today. So would you invite that person that you're testifying to? Just come down to the altar with me. We're going to pray with you. Just come on down to the altar. We're going to help you. We're going to do everything we can. We're not better than you. We're Samaritans and we know what it's like to be where you're at.